You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Harold McGee, who is Food science, is that even a, I don't even know if that's a distinct discipline. You don't have an academic affiliation, but I think of you as a world's leading food scientist, maybe along with Ferran Adria and a couple other practitioners. But Harold is also the author of most recently this book, Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells, which is kind of awesome. It, it builds on this book, which is kind of the, the Bible for a lot of us who are interested in food science on food and cooking. This is the second edition. I had bought the first edition back in the 80s. This is the latest edition. And he's also the author of The Curious Cook. And the other book was The Keys to Good Cooking. Is that right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Welcome, Harold. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be with you. Now, before we jump in and start talking about the Nosedive book, your background is one that is fascinating to me because you started at Caltech and uh, I think you were studying chemistry and then you wound up at uh, Yale doing English Lit. That's not the normal trajectory. I studied at Caltech. It didn't last as long as you did. I realized that I, I needed to switch out. I could not stomach it for very long. What made you decide to switch to the humanities when you were basically studying to become a scientist? I started out thinking that I was going to be an astronomer, and my father had gone to Caltech. And so on our coffee table as I was growing up, we would have the alumni magazines. And of course, Mount Palomar belonged to uh, Caltech and Mount Wilson and so on. So anyway, it was the obvious place to, to shoot for. I squeaked in and got there and had the same experience you did, which is that I discovered that the nuts and bolts of astronomy was not really what I was interested in. But there were people there who kind of took me under their wing and said, you know, you came here because you're interested in science. If you play your cards right, cherry pick the courses you take here and stick around. And so I ended up majoring. I got a Bachelor of Science degree in literature. (laughs) from Caltech. Wow. I didn't even know they had that. Yeah. Well, I didn't either until they told me (laughs) that was a possibility. And it really was ideal because I was able to study literature and philosophy most of the time, but then take a course from Willie Fowler, who helped discover how it is that the elements are created in stars heard it from him himself. That was uh, an amazing experience. So I I realized I was interested not so much in the nuts and bolts as in the, the feelings and ideas that astronomy elicited in me. And so that's why I went into literature and then went to Yale and studied poetry, English romantic poetry in particular. And I was ready to spend the rest of my life immersed in that. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of jobs for people (laughs) to teach English romantic poetry at the level I wanted to do it. And so I did it for a few years, kind of one year at a time couldn't really land a permanent position. And so I began to look around for other things to do. And that's how I ended up eventually writing about the science of cooking. (laughs) Yeah, I started in French history and made a detour. But in the book, at the end of the book on smells, you recount what it was like to be in the library all the time. I see you have a bit of a library behind you, but just that passage made me evoked in me this remembrance of the smell of bookstores and the smell of the library, which is a smell I think that is ultimately 
one that our descendants will, <laughs> will never be exposed to, right? But what I found interesting is just the writing about it and the talking about it was sufficient to evoke a smell memory. And you know, the memory of smells is so deep inside of us. And I think we'll, we're going to get into that. The other thing I wanted to ask you initially is, you know, in this book, you have it in the introduction, you say that when the first edition came out in 1984, there really wasn't any kind of defined discipline of food science. Now, I think maybe some of the folks at Davis would disagree Maybe they think that agricultural science is the same as food science or taste science. What's happened over the last 30 years almost? How has this discipline emerged? How has it evolved? And are you surprised by this? I should say that there is a discipline called food science, an academic discipline in which you can get you know, a master's and a PhD and that kind of thing. It's been around for not that long, actually, you know, decades, not centuries. And, and so what I did was kind of stumble on the fact that this field existed, which was you know, unapparent to almost everyone back in the 70s. It was a backwater. And when I stumbled on it and realized that there was so much interesting stuff in there. That's really what motivated me to do the writing I did. And so I would call what I do kitchen science. Food science as an academic discipline is, is largely devoted to manufacturing and public safety, public health issues, that kind of thing. Not so much about what happens in people's kitchens or in restaurants even. And so that's what I wanted to do was translate that academic field to the everyday world of cooking. And uh, it's true that in the 1970s, that was a new idea. There were a couple of other books, actually, that came out around the time that I thought about this. But one was uh, a kind of question and answer book. So if you didn't ask the right question, you wouldn't find the answer. <laughs> and the other was um, actually written by a professional chemist who who knew his chemistry, but really didn't have, uh, clearly had a dim view of the capacities of his readership. So it was kind of a dumbed down version of chemistry. What I really wanted to do was write for people like myself and my friends for the most part. I didn't really know anyone in the restaurant industry at that time. I just wanted to share this the information that was available in this academic field that hadn't been disseminated. And then what happened is that the world in general got way more interested in food than it had been. And uh the science of cooking was one part of that. So my feeling is that I was very lucky and that I was able to catch the wave early on and then uh, ride it to the present day. Yeah, I became you know fascinated with food as at a young age because in growing up in a typical American household, I ate mixed frozen vegetables and tuna helper and, and this this sort of thing. And and yet you know when I would read about you know, read history and read about other cultures and other societies, it, it really made me wonder what the heck I was missing out on. And even in, in a typical city, you can go down to the Italian market or go down to the Asian market and see that there's this massive world that you're missing out on. <laughs> and so I think most people came to that same realization at the time. But in this book, there's not just science, there's nosedive. There is uh, a lot of what, what I might think of as, as humanities or social science in there. And that, of course, is the part that attracted me the most. All the compounds and so forth I've already forgotten about, except for the more vivid ones. But Jacques Pepin, in his memoir, he, he discussed how in the 50s, he wanted to get a PhD in kind of food history, and he couldn't find any place to do it. And he ultimately had to create that discipline at Columbia University. 
Is there a connection, do you think? Are the food science folks and the food history and humanities and social significance of, of food folks and sensory experience talking to each other? We are now, but it's true that back in the 70s, uh, the base, basic problem was that food was not a respectable subject for anybody back then. I got to know people who were involved in the origins of the Oxford Food Symposium, which has been going now for, this is its 40th year. So it started in the late 1970s, around that same time that I had discovered food science as a, an academic discipline. But I still have trouble understanding why it is that something so fundamental to human existence <laughs> wasn't a respectable academic subject. I, I know many people who proposed thesis projects on food in history and sociology and philosophy and were told by their advisors, no, that's you can't do that. Now it's very different. Now there are food studies programs all over the place and uh, all kinds of exciting work being done. I think there just had to be this kind of uh, shift in attitude in the academy that then helped make the study of food not only fun and fascinating, but respectable. <laughs> I interviewed Richard Rangham recently, and he, he discussed how the change in diet enabled by the invention of fire was really fundamental to human evolution. And so even the paleontologists and the biologists and the um, anthropologists are, are taking food seriously now, as you would expect. But again, one of the questions I have for you is, does the study of the science how does this help or, or hurt one's aesthetic experience? I always wonder, and you, you, know, you cite a couple poets like Hugh McDermott. You didn't mention Emily Dickinson, but others, the poets would say, all those poets that you studied when you're at Yale, they would say you're, you're dissecting the bird and killing the song. Do, do we really need to know about all these chemical compounds when we're sitting there eating our grouse at the restaurant, you know, at Fergus Henderson's restaurant? How does knowledge of the science enhance or flatten our aesthetic experience. Keats, who is the guy I wrote my dissertation on, has a line about uh, how Newton unwove the rainbow by explaining what was going on. He dis essentially destroyed it. And I don't think that's the case. And I actually don't think that Keats thought that because, you know, Keats was a, actually a medical student and appreciated what science could bring to human experience. It just seems to me that it, it adds a dimension. It adds a layer of appreciation. When I eat something, even knowing the compounds, it's not the compounds that I first encounter. It's my experience. It's the, the taste and the smell and so on. And if it's interesting enough, I've always wanted them to understand more about it. Why does this thing have this wonderful flavor? Why did the grouse have that effect on me? And so learning about what underlies that experience, it seems to me, if you're drawn to the experience in the first place, just adds a, a dimension of appreciation that you wouldn't have otherwise. If you're on a romantic date and you're analyzing all of the scents and, the, and the, you know, the serotonin and the oxytocin and all that, it's not going to um, reduce the romantic nature of the date? Oh, if, if I'm on a date, and in fact, I finished the book with a description of my second grouse experience, which was with 
a very good friend. <laughs> and it wasn't on my mind. The, the details were not on my mind at all. It's just that if you if you're interested, and that's why I called the book a field guide, you know, if you're out and you observe a bird, you hear its song, and that's a wonderful experience in and of itself. But if you want to know which bird it was and how far it flew in order to be with you and that kind of thing, then there's that information out there in field guides to help you appreciate that. So that the next time you encounter that bird, that's kind of part of your database of appreciation. Now, this book is about what you call the, the osmocosm or run a class on the wine industry here at Berkeley. And usually the first um, session is devoted to the art of wine tasting. You know, usually we'll bring someone in and they will teach people how to swirl and how to taste. And, and then usually there's something called like a, a flavor wheel or a flavor palette. And then people are trained to identify, you know, this tastes like cat urine or this tastes like you know leather or, or mahogany or whatever. And, and, and so this is something that's very, seems to be very common in the wine world, but we don't tend to see it in other parts of our lives, even other parts of our culinary lives. And this book isn't just about food. It's about pretty much all the different smells, including the smells of the universe, <laughs> which I guess takes you back to your Caltech days. Why is it that we don't have, we, we don't talk in those terms? As a visual artist, you have cerulean blue and you have cadmium red. And most painters, when they're talking to each other, will use that terminology. And even ordinary people have Roy G. Biv and we have the color spectrum. Why is the smell palette so backgrounded? Why isn't it foregrounded and, and talked about more explicitly? That's a very good question. And I don't have a, an answer that I'm convinced of particularly, except for the fact that if you just think culturally about the place of smell, it's generally been ignored for in the West anyway, for thousands of years, you know, beginning with Plato and Aristotle and going right through to Kant and beyond. Smell is a very basic sense. And some would say it's our, our most animalistic sense. And the way that we express our humanity most fully is by way of language and the visual arts and music and that kind of thing, not sensory experience in and of itself. And the sense of smell, as I describe in the book, is really our most direct contact with the material world. We're not seeing photons. We're not registering pressure waves in the air. We're actually detecting little bits, little molecules of the material world all around us. And it may be that it's that very materialistic aspect of the sense that has led to our really devaluing it over the course of the centuries in, in Western culture. In the East, it's not quite so clear cut. Smell has always been important in China and India and Japan and cultures in, in Asia in general incense, in fragrances, in the celebrations of things in everyday life. I'm not sure that the vocabulary for talking about it is that much more developed in the East than it is in the West. But again, I think we're just as we caught on to the fact that food is really important and interesting and delightful, I think we're now catching on to the fact that sometimes by its absence, by our loss of smell in, in the case of COVID, that smell is something that contributes a lot to human happiness and to human understanding. And it's about time that we started to pay more attention to it. 
I think I read recently that of all the senses, it's the loss of smell, which leads to the greatest rate of depression and suicide. So when people go blind or deaf, they are less likely to kill themselves than if they lose their, their sense of, of smell. And I think COVID has brought that to people's uh, attention. And so I think you mentioned two things. One is whether the idea of smell is something that's explicit and analyzed. And then the other is what it is we smell. At least in the West, we still have quite a bit of attention to smell, but it seems to be that we want to distance ourselves from those smells which remind us of our animality, right? And of our mortality or something like this. Why do you suppose, is that the story? Is, is it really that humans are afraid of their animal nature and they would just want to camouflage it with non-animal scents? I mean, I think in the world of perfume, haven't we seen an evolution away from the, the musks and the civets and more towards like the florals and the, the non-animal smells? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on in this evolution that has to do in part with the fact that we're living in more crowded conditions than we did way, way back. And so we're in contact with each other more intimately, more often. And uh, we're generally speaking, shut up indoors. You know, we don't really spend that much of our lives outdoors where the, the air is fresh. So we have to create this illusion of freshness indoors. And that has led to the uh, dominance of citrusy, piney kinds of smells becoming the, the sort of smell cliches for nice indoors. And we are reluctant to impose our personal smells on other people or to have other people's personal smells imposed on us because there's no escaping them if they're there. <laughs> so I think that's a big part of it. Circumstances in which we live have changed over the centuries and that has led to this kind of deodorization of our daily lives. Yeah, I think you, you reference uh, Sartre where he analogized smelling someone to basically ingesting their body or their vaporized body. It's a very intimate thing to smell someone or to be smelled by someone. Yeah, I think that helps explain why we instinctively, probably biologically, stop breathing in through our nose when we smell something we don't like, because we're, we know that it's now inside us. We brought it inside us and we don't want it in there. So <laughs> we shut off that, that avenue of reminding us the fact that we're breathing that same air. But in the book, you also talk about, you ask the question of why is it that we, we have such sensitive uh, noses? Why is it that we smell? And you point out that nothing in itself has smell, right? Smell is a phenomenon of the brain. If we smell something, presumably there is some survival benefit to smelling that thing. And, and there's plenty of things that don't have a smell. And presumably they're, they're not things like background oxygen, nitrogen, and so forth don't really have a smell because we don't really need to know what the, the oxygen gradient is because it's more or less everywhere. And it, to, how does understanding kind of the purpose or the evolutionary purpose of our smell sensation help us to appreciate these smells better? I think the general point would be that smell is a chemical sense. It tells us what molecules are in our neighborhood. And that's been important to life from the very beginnings of life. <laughs> the first single cells needed to know what direction they needed to float in or propel themselves in to get food or to avoid toxins. So it's just absolutely fundamental to life. And in, in mammals, we now have a, a sense that has been developed for us in particular with our noses up off the ground, a sense that has developed to answer the needs of uh, our particular biological and ecological 
situation. And it does seem to be the case that we, because smell has been receding in importance in our daily lives, our apparatus for detecting those smells has been atrophying to some extent. We don't have as many smell receptors as many of our mammalian relatives do. On the other hand, we have amazing processing power for dealing with the smells that we do detect and making sense of them and so on. And so I think the locus of ability in smelling has shifted in us from the detectors to the, the processing equipment that we have to make sense of those smells that we can detect. So there's this long-term evolutionary trajectory where presumably we're less, our smell capabilities are not quite as good as say a dog's or some other mammals. But then there's probably the more more recent non-biological uh, change that you reference. And, and the way I think about it is those London cab drivers who had the hippocampus that was swollen and they could navigate London. And now with Google Maps, that hippocampus is just shriveling up. And there's, uh, you read these stories about the Australian native people who can basically go from one part of Australia to the other because they have this visual map. App. Smells not that we don't really need it to survive in our lives, whereas it might have been much, much more important for people in other societies. Does that mean we just don't like the vocabulary that we have and the smell map is just non-existent or, you know, lessened or flattened and that it could be built up through through cultivation or through exposure? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. We still have 400 receptors and they still do pick up on what's around us and what matters is what use we make of that information and if we don't use it if we don't pay attention to it then there's no reason to in the next time that we encounter that smell but if we do stop and register it and think about it and make associations then yeah a lot is possible a couple of things one is that in recent years as Smell has become a respectable academic subject, which again, like food, it was not for a long time. That changed around the year 2000, and now it's a hugely exciting field. Now that it's an exciting field, people are going back and looking at questions like, are we better or worse than other mammals? And if you actually do the controlled ex proper controlled experiments what you find is that we're actually pretty good compared to dogs and uh, wild animals of various kinds when it comes to detecting particular molecules at low concentrations. We're about as sensitive as most mammals are, but because for most mammals, it's a way more important and much more exercised sense, that's where the, the difference lies. So if we started out life paying as much attention to those smells as, as animals do, we would be probably as good. And if we stuck our nose down on the ground the way dogs do, and this has been demonstrated in a wonderful experiment at Berkeley, actually, we can also track things as well as dogs do. There's a lot of possibility there. That's fascinating. Um, you talk about familiarity and, and you know smell. The minute when you're exposed to something for more than a few seconds, you stop smelling it, right? And so you have to refresh yourself. I remember 25 years ago, we were surrounded by cigarette smoke pretty much everywhere. And so you barely noticed it. Now, I think if someone lights a cigarette 300 yards from my house, I can smell it almost immediately because it's something that you don't smell that often nowadays. In Berkeley, the marijuana, I don't notice. But, but does that mean that you could go to a smell, like a personal trainer for smelling? In fact, I think you 
Bruno Latour, you reference, he, he wrote about how people in the perfume business can essentially become noses. And, and I liked this quote that you had from uh, Michelle, which was, um, intellect is empty if the body has not knocked about. So can we see a day where, you know, you go to smell training institutes the way you currently now go to bodybuilding institutes or, or something like that? Yes, that's exactly what people in the perfume industry and nowadays in the flavor industry do. Manufactured packaged foods are very carefully formulated. Flavor is, is one of the more difficult things that they have to figure out for materials like that. And so flavor chemists and fragrance chemists do exactly that. They spend hours every day sniffing individual molecules and noticing the qualities that those molecules evoke in their apparatus. And because we all have different apparatuses, it's going to be different for different people. But you come up with your own way of recognizing and identifying and associating particular volatile molecules with particular qualities. And um, yeah, so it's that's exactly what goes on in those professions. And nowadays, that's actually being applied to people who have lost their sense of smell through COVID. And before COVID came, it's it has been a problem in other kinds of viral infections in as a side effect of chemotherapy and that kind of thing. So you can just make a conscious effort to sit down with, if not individual molecules, then you know the the spices on your spice rack and just sit down and and learn from scratch if necessary what those particular smells are so why isn't it used more in say medicine or i think in the old days I remember the play about George III, where every day they would inspect his chamber pot to diagnose his, his illnesses. And I think in, in folk medicine, they're constantly evaluating people based on, on their smell. I know that if I'm sick or if anyone I know is sick, I can tell even before they feel their symptoms, I can usually tell based on their smell. And there's evidence that dogs can do a better job of detecting COVID than you know some of the antigen tests that we have out in the market. And yet you don't really see at a hospital, you don't have the dog sniffing for lung cancer. You need to have some kind of machine or some kind of blood test. We use the dogs to sniff out the bombs and we use them to sniff out the drugs that people are smuggling into, or in my case, it's usually the meat that I'm trying to smuggle in from Italy or France and they take it away. They even took an apple. I had an apple from Kazakhstan that was accidentally in my bag and they took that and I was basically in trouble with those people for years. But why aren't doctors taught to use their noses? Is it again, this kind of aversion to the sense or is it that we just we would rather use a smelling machine and we just haven't figured out how to do a smelling we can we have MRIs, we have CAT scans, we have all these other things, but we don't have a device that can analyze volatile compounds accurately enough. Yeah. Actually, this is a, another one of those areas that was moribund for a long time and now is very active. First of all, doctors have for some time been using particular smells as diagnostics for especially metabolic diseases, because if you're lacking genes to deal with particular compounds in your diet, then you end up with byproducts that can be volatile. And that's been a way of diagnosing a number of serious diseases in, in infants and being able to to modify the diet quickly to deal with that. More generally speaking, the people at the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia have been working on dog identification of volatiles associated with particular diseases for a couple of decades now. And um, it's working for some things. And then the, the machine 
people are using that information to try to develop sensors that will pick up particular molecules that would be useful to know about. So it's, it's all happening at different levels and at different stages, but it hasn't matured yet. It's not yet become part of the standard treatment. Now, I want to get back to this idea of nature versus culture. If we think that the sense of smell evolved in order to provide us with valuable information about attractants and, and avoidance and so forth, then we would think that there's like these, like Darwin talked about the universal emotions. There should be these kind of universal smells that nobody likes. There were a couple compounds that you had, what was it, cadaverine and putrine. I love the names of these things. And so, you know, you would think, okay, cadaverine is something that nobody likes. But then you, you point out, well, actually, in some cultures, like that's like, yeah, that's dinner. You know, you got the rotting corpse somewhere. So how much of our smell affect is universal and, and natural? You know, and if it is, then why do we ignore it? So one of the great, a couple of examples you point to are how when babies drink breast milk, their feces, you know, smell fresh. And when they have formula, it smells, you know, rancid. I've heard from people who work in meat processing plants that when you slaughter a grass-fed cow, the cow smells, doesn't smell bad, but when you process a, a grain-fed cow, it smells terrible. Shouldn't this tell us something? Like, isn't this an indicator of, or is this just a fabricated affect? So there is, as you say, the initial information that we get from our receptors, which is that there are particular molecules in the stuff that we're dealing with. And so grass-fed and grain-fed animals are going to have different body smells because they've been on very different diets. But then how are minds how our brains register that difference is going to depend very much on our experience, on our database, because what the brain does is take in that chemical information and then use its database to figure out where have I come upon this before, what does it signify, and what's an appropriate response to that signification. And of course, most of that is going to depend on prior experience. That's how your database is built. And it turns out that we all human beings appear to go through a period in you know late infancy early childhood where the slate is clean they'll put anything in their mouths and so disgust and displeasure seems to be learned there don't seem to be any universal compounds or univer universal responses to particular compounds but i should also say that the response is going to depend on the dose so even very pleasant things, if you're hit with an awful lot of it all at once, is just going to be overwhelming and therefore unpleasant for that reason. And that's why I think there is this kind of gradation for things like putrescine and indole, which are molecules that in decaying animal flesh are really prominent and overwhelming. But they're also in flowers, in tiny little doses in the background, where, in fact, they kind of lend a, an interest because they're not your usual flowery smell, but they're also not so obvious as to really disgust you. So it's complicated. So it's the compounds themselves, their concentrations, our experience, our expectations. It's a wonderfully complicated mixture. Yeah. I mean, so many of the foods that we eat are basically rotting in one way or another. Some are worse than Epoise, you mentioned, is my favorite cheese of all time. And um, it does smell rather human-like in a way. And and what is it? Lutefisk. Or the one I heard was the absolute worst was uh, Greenland shark, which I don't think you, you mentioned it in the book, but it's they bury it for... <laughs> for months and it's just, you know, awful. 
apparently, but it, it's also apparently really good. If you get used to it, drink it with a strong aquavit. Yes. Uh, no, Hakarl, I think is the name of that, that shark. And it's true. I, I have not tasted that, although I, I did include the fact that it's apparently it smells mostly like ammonia when all the, the fermentation is done. My favorite extreme food is something called surstroming, which is a, a canned Swedish herring that is essentially allowed to rot in the can. In the U.S., anyway, um, if we buy canned goods and the can begins to swell, that's a sign of the possibility of botulism. Yeah. And so you're, you're supposed to just get rid of it without even opening it. In the case of surstroming, what you're looking for are cans that look more like footballs than like cans, because that in-can fermentation is a big part of the <laughs> of the ultimate appeal. But you have to open it very carefully because it's under pressure and you don't want to get sprayed. Yeah. You talk about it. you brought a Dorian fruit into your hotel room in Singapore and that didn't end well. That's right. And I, I was fascinated by it sitting out street side and enjoying my different durian cultivars. But when you bring it into an enclosed space like your hotel room, which you aren't supposed to do anyway, it quickly builds up to really, uh, yeah, unlivable <laughs> levels. When you live in these micro worlds like I do in, in Berkeley or people in New York's Brooklyn or whatever, it's almost impossible to know what the general trends are in the world. And so in this world, you know, you see an increasing interest in those funky malodorous foods and fermented stuff. I mean, people joke about how everybody in Brooklyn's becoming a pickle maker or whatever. But the broader trend seems to be worldwide, a movement away from these sorts of foods. And in particular, you talk, I found fascinating this term pre-cooking on the hoof, right? Where whether it's castration or grass feeding or I forget, there was another thing that, that you could do to an animal to basically make it taste less, yeah, make it fattier. So the foie gras process, right? These are all ways of essentially getting rid of the animal-like flavor. What's driving that trend? And is that sort of just consistent with this idea that people are versed to being reminded that they're eating animals and, and they want to believe that they're just eating this disembodied protein? Is that the idea? <laughs> Good question. I really don't know. And the people who are making the fake meat here in Bay Area, everybody's making fake meat. Should they think about putting a more stinky and goaty smell into it to make it more, more meat-like? That's one of the things is that people have different preferences for especially those kinds of things that they really do divide populations, people who, who love those kinds of strong animal flavors and other people who just can't stand them. I think in the case of things like uh, foie gras, that has, I think, as much to do with just the sense of luxury. It's something that takes a lot of effort to produce. It takes a long time to produce. It's a seasonal thing, at least in its original form. And so it was kind of a special food for those reasons. And I think the people who invented it, you know, who were in the Middle East and, and Europe probably had no problem with very animal <laughs> flavors. But it may be part of the reason that people here now like it. That's quite possible. The flavor of foie gras is much less livery than just plain liver is. The other thing I found, found interesting is the what you eat affects how you smell. And I think, I forget which culture it was that their word for Europeans is the people who smell like butter. But you mentioned how Africans and Asians and, and, and Europeans have different 
smells in part because of their biology, but also in part because of what you eat. And so the, I remember you described how some people would refer to Europeans as that in China, they would say that they smell like goats. They're like the goat people, or they smell like Russians, or this is a term that means people who, who have this more meaty smell. <laughs> Is how much of that is driven by what you eat? How is what you eat change what you smell and how you smell? Uh, so there, there are these two different aspects. One is the intrinsic body odor of humans, <laughs> regardless of what their diet is, and it turns out that does vary from from one part of the world to another, and it has to do with genetics. Uh, and this has been nailed down by people in the flavor and fragrance business because they want to find out you know how to formulate their deodorants to make them most effective so they need to understand what it is that they're trying to deodorize and what they found and now biologists are very interested in this is uh, genetic variants between asian populations, European populations, North American populations, South American, African. We've all got different sets of genes that encode compounds that ultimately affect the way we smell. And it's fascinating. No one's come up with a, a good explanation yet for why they should be so different. But that's one thing. Then there are the smells that develop in and on us based on our diet. And those develop simply because when we take food in, our body metabolizes the materials that come into us. It makes use of the things that it can make use of, like proteins and carbohydrates and fats. The other stuff, it has to find a way to, to get rid of so that it doesn't gum up our works. You know, if the compounds can't be used, then we need to dispose of them. And either they're disposed of directly as is. And so if you've eaten Indian food recently and it happens to have fenugreek as one of the components of the spice mix, you're going to sweat that out and you're going to pee it out. So you'll know it for a while. And in fact, my grandmother is was Indian and lived in England. I would see her once a year, basically, and just sitting in her lap that's what I remember. That was what she smelled like all the time, in addition to the warmth and the, all the other things. So it's a combination of those two things. It's what it is that we take into our bodies and that our bodies need to deal with. And then the, uh, the intrinsic compounds that our bodies make apparently originally to as signals to each other. Yeah, one of the more interesting chapters in the book was really about kind of animal signals. And it's an area that I'm I'm very interested in. And, you know, you walk through how these compounds that animals create, they go to a lot of effort. They go to a lot of just like flowers, but animals they put a lot of effort into creating these chemicals that are may serve no other purpose than to generate and, and collect smells in conjunction with the, the bacteria that they're basically feeding. They're basically feeding this biome, which has a certain smell, and it's meant to signal certain things. And a lot of it is about dominance or other things, or it's not that they're you're trying to communicate fear, but then people are able to detect it and, and other things. And I'm wondering, does this kind of body odor suppression, is body odor suppression kind of a um, corollary to democracy? Like, do we need to have body odor suppression in order to suppress all these signals? If the signal's about you're on the in-group versus the out-group, you're my neighbor, I need to distinguish you from the people one village over, or you're dominant and you're submissive, do we need to just suppress all this? And I'm wondering, 
There's these studies that show every time you shake someone's hand, like you smell their hand, presumably to feel them out and figure out, you know, how they relate to you. Maybe with COVID and all the elbow bumping, we don't have this information and that might be a good thing. Maybe it's better that we're all the same. (laughs) Yeah. I'd actually never thought about that aspect of this. I don't think that first of all, psychologists and biologists are very interested in this question of chemical communication and pheromones and this kind of thing, and whether these sorts of effects exist in human beings. And it's still very much up in the air. It's a a very elusive thing. It's not in-your-face effect. A lot of it seems to be subliminal. So you don't meet someone and smell your hand and immediately think, this guy's going to be trouble or something like that. It's If there's processing going on, it's going on below the level of consciousness. And it does seem that people are able to detect fear and illness and things like that if they're in experimental situations and smelling cotton swabs that have been in the armpits of people with these various things, they can tell differences. But how much of a role that actually plays in our everyday life when we're also looking at people and there's noise and the air is moving and you've got expectations and you're thinking what you're going to say next. I think it's a fascinating question, but still very much up in the air. Yeah, and I think with all the attention that we've been uh, giving to racism and uh, outgroup discrimination and so forth, and the emphasis is almost entirely on what people look like. And if people, you know, do smell differently based on their ethnicity, there could be discrimination happening, but it's happening for reasons that are very we're not really paying attention to. And uh, one of the things I want to circle back to is how how these things combine, because one of the most fascinating facts, and by the way, there are like just an enormous amount of super interesting insights in this book, just like in on food and cooking, I had to wade through all the chemistry (laughs) to get the insights that I I was looking for. But, you know, you mentioned the importance of allium or is it allia? And I'm someone who puts garlic, shallots, onions, scallions, ramps, pretty much anything that is an allium I pretty much have in my pot pretty much every day. And you made this interesting insight that what we think of as this good flavor gravy tends to come from the allia. And one of the reasons why is is because it activates the same thing that we get from human sweat. This is at least a conjecture. And so a lot of our interaction with food is driven by things that may come from an entirely different domain, our relationship with people and, and vice versa. That's right. Yeah. It's it, to me, well, I should maybe say that the reason I ended up writing this book about the smells of the world is that I started out writing a book just about flavor, about food and drink. And then realized as I did that, that I was constantly being referred by the scientific literature to other things, you know, to molecules that are found in or are even more dominant in other things in the world that have nothing to do with food and drink. And that led me to wonder why it is that these other things in the world have the the smells that they do. And that's how uh, a field guide to the world's smells came about. It took me eight years longer than I was supposed to, <laughs> but but I think it was worth it because thing that I that hadn't occurred to me before and I, I think doesn't occur to most people, which is that whenever we're enjoying food and drink, we're of course enjoying those things, but those things have a lot in common with 
other parts of the world and other experiences. And they have the, the flavors they do for reasons, evolutionary or culinary or whatever they might be. And getting back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, I don't think that diminishes our appreciation of food and drink. I think it actually adds something to it because we can, it's a different aspect that we're adding to our database. You know, we have our own personal experiences and our own personal knowledge, but science has told us a lot about these interconnections. And if we put that in our database, then that's just another thing we can enjoy. You talk about how we're able to do like pseudo fermentation. Some of the more interesting food products that I've consumed over the years were the product of some kind of fermentation or you call two different types of alchemy, right? You have the pyroalchemy and the, what's the word used for the fermentation? Bio. Bioalchemy, <laughs> right? So a lot of these processes are very time consuming. They're very carefully orchestrated, cult managing these fungi and managing these bacteria is very complicated. And modern science enables us to short circuit all this. So rather than spending 20 years making some kind of balsamic vinegar, we can whip it up in the lab in, in a few seconds. Or, you know, my favorite is uh, one of my students was working for a company that is they can make something that tastes like a uh, barrel aged whiskey almost instantly because they've distilled down what the volatile compound is. And then they just inject it into the, the grain alcohol and bingo, you have 20 year old whiskey. What do I would love to know what your thoughts are about this? Cause there's this kind of authenticity and story and narrative that shapes our experience. If you strip all that away, does that change things? And I noticed you had um, Daniel Patterson was one of the people you thanked in, at the end of the book. And he's, of course, a local chef who orchestrates all these fascinating kind of sensory experiences at the dining table. Is there a concern that the molecular gastronomy movement and fabricating stuff in the lab as opposed to the long kind of craft tradition <laughs> over the years, is, is there something that's going to be lost there? Or is that a grumpy, crotchety um, you know, response to this? I think it's a, a completely understandable response, but it's not exactly my response. I would go back to the the way it is that we perceive things, the way it is that we take pleasure in things, which has to do with our experience and our database and our expectations and so on. And I would just say that a concocted whiskey and a true, truly made, traditionally made whiskey, they're similarly flavored products of two very different processes. And it depends on what you like. I'm sure there are people, the fans of Soylent, for example, who will think it's really cool <laughs> that you can do this. And they'll sip on the concocted whiskey and really enjoy it. And I can kind of do that as a, an indication of an expression of human ingenuity that we took this really complicated process, figured out how it works, figured out what it is that really makes a difference to us and have recreated it in a completely different way. I think that's an amazing achievement. On the other hand, if you give me the choice between that and a 20 year old Scotch whiskey or a bourbon, I'll take the real thing because I appreciate the fact that this is the product of such a different process. And it's the appreciation of the process that I think makes the difference. You know, when you come right down to it, the particular sensations themselves are just the beginning of the process of appreciating and enjoying something. And so simply replicating those is an achievement, but it's a very different thing from enjoying and imagining how the other thing was made and, and appreciating that. 
So there, there will always be people who will pay extra for the wind-up watch, and there will always be people that will pay extra for the, the physical books. <laughs> so I still have piles of physical books, including your books, and haven't yet, I'm as technologically advanced as I am, I'm resisting the Kindle. And uh, so, you know, last question, I guess, is that, is this, does this offer the opportunity for a new occupation or profession? We think about architects, and architects are basically designing our, our space. They're starting to think about putting uh, scents and, and aromas into, we, we know that in, and I was talking to Charles Spence recently, and he was talking about how, if you want to sell more cookies, you got to have the smell of cookies in the environment and so forth. We have a new kind of smell architect. Is this a new occupation? And will people, you know, seek out designed smell experiences or will we continue down this road of smell degradation and, and disappearance? What do you think? No, I, I think smell is already enjoying a renaissance. You know, I just received the other day a catalog for a museum in The Hague in, in the Netherlands, which has an exhibit now of paintings. And along with it, they're providing little spray bottles of smells so that you can experience what it is that you see in these 17th and 18th century paintings of life in the Netherlands. So the art world is discovering it as an, an additional aspect of the experience of enjoying the art of the past. And there are now people who do specialize in creating and designing smell spaces. And people are leading tours of cities by virtue of their smells, You know, going to different neighborhoods to appreciate different smells. So I think we're in the midst of a, a renaissance, and I, I don't think smell is going to go away. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll breed flowers with smell back into them and so forth. Harold, thank you so much. This is great. Hopefully, I'll be able to have you over for dinner sometime in Berkeley. Check this out, Nosedive, and of course, the classic on food and cooking. You're going to have another addition to this out sometime soon, or, or what do you think? Maybe sometime, but not soon. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so don't wait for the next one. Go get this one. You'll still get plenty of value out of it while waiting for the next edition. Thank you so much, Harold. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. It was great fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. 